Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody. Welcome uh, to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name's Cal Penn. I'm delighted to be here with my friend Huma Abedin for a conversation about our new books, You Can't Be Serious, and Both and A Life in Many Worlds. Just a reminder, if you have a question for either of us, please submit those in the chat or the comment section. Huma, welcome. Cal, I am so excited to be in conversation with you. And I, I just think it's amazing happenstance that we both have our books coming out at the same time. I'm so excited to talk to you. Same here. I've been uh, I've been seeing you everywhere the last couple of weeks, especially the last week and a half. Uh, I know we had the same pub date, and it, I have been so excited to hear you tell your story. And um, I'm just going to brag a little bit because you sent me an early copy of the book, and I was thumbing through just the photos at first, and it's like, like it's the same photos that I have in my book of the immigrant <laughs> parents and the the 70s, 80s attire, and the trips to South Asia. And it's just like excited for this because I feel like the, that experience of uh, at least I, what I felt was boundless possibility as a kid yeah. going into this unlikely journey of entering worlds, uh, uh, you know, mostly entertainment and then dabbling in, in public service. You've had this whole lifetime of public service. W- were there, I mean, were the parents an influence? What, what was the big end <laughs> that got you in there? Cal, I, so I'm. I want to gush about you for a minute because I just want to <laughs> tell you. That about you. Okay. Look, these are my oh, notes. Oh my gosh. I and yes, I compared early family photos. I loved your book. I loved your book so much, and I feel like, you know, we've known each other in politics. I've obviously seen you. You know, I've watched your shows. I, I know you're. You know, super famous, but. Your story, I just opened the book and I couldn't put it down. I thought, you know, I'm on a book tour. I can't, there's not a lot to do uh, aside from reading my own book and preparing. And I think anyone who's watched any of my interviews these last two weeks knows I've never done anything public. I've never spoken in public before. And now I am two weeks later, I'm doing the thing that scares me the most. But more than that, I'm talking to somebody who just reading your book, Cal, I just came away away with such an extraordinary respect for your story. I mean, I knew you were a trailblazer, but one of the things I think connected us, and I kind of wish we wrote our books together because I definitely (laughs) went through, it was easy and then it was hard because I felt so much connection to you. And since you asked the question about our immigrant, you know, you know, parents and and stories and, and grandparents, you know, I opened my book with my uh, grandmother, um, you know, who my my father came from India. My mother came from Pakistan, both immigrants, I think, like your story. Mm-hmm. And this notion of education being a religion, of sacrifice, you know, the story you tell in your book about going to Gandhi's ashram with your grandfather yeah. and, you know, them not talking about, you know, being freedom fighters and all of that. And I felt that very much in my family, my my, my grandmother fought to go to school back in the time in India where girls were not sent. It was a shameful mm-hmm. to be sent outside the house. And she would get on the back of an ox cart, you know, in the back wow. of the house, not to bring shame to the family. And every time I think about those pinch me moments that you and I have had in the mm-hmm. White House on Air mm-hmm. Force One, I think about our grandparents and our parents and what they sacrificed to give us this extraordinary life of opportunity. I loved your book so much. So anyway, thank you. I mean, 
look, that's mutual. And the, the whole gushing thing, I mean, aside from, from uh, going through the book, I, I also have just been so, I, you're somebody who I've admired for, for years, uh, you know, and you're right. I, I was one of those nerds in, in college and especially post-college who would Google like, why hasn't Huma been doing all these interviews? And then you realize it's because of the, the nature of the role that, you played and the the, yeah. the type of public service you've done and the the big one of the questions I wanted to ask you was whether yeah. there was with your parents and and yeah. and the work that you chose was there a singular moment when first of all were they supportive of kind of what you wanted to do early on and was there a singular moment where they sort of said I'm proud of the work that you're doing yeah well you know and and I I want I want to get the answer from you also but my parents yeah. um I think one of the most extraordinary things about my parents is that so when, when I was 2 I was born in Kalamazoo Michigan and I often think about sort of this this notion of choice and my parents my when I was 2 my father was diagnosed with renal failure and he was told he had 5 to 10 years to live and it's one of the first lines I wrote in my book. My father was told he was dying. And so he went out and lived. And two months later, we moved to Saudi Arabia. My parents um, were both professors, academics. We get on this plane for a one-year sabbatical. And that was 42 years ago. And even though I grew up in a, in a you know, conservative environment, I think anyone who knows anything about Saudi Arabia was a culturally and socially conservative. My mother in particular really struggled. She left Pakistan to study in the United States, then has to go to Saudi Arabia and she can't even drive. But they always told me in a community, and this is why I laughed so hard when you wrote this, you could be three things in our part of the world, a doctor, yeah. a lawyer, right. engineer. And if you weren't doing one of those three things, and if you were a girl, then you could get married and you could maybe, you know, or, or a teacher, but there were certain circumscribed, you know, professions. And my parents always told me, you can do whatever it is you want. All we require is that you be educated. And I believe my dad, who I was very close to when he died when I was 17, always thought I would be a writer. He would bring books back from his travels overseas. And one year he brought, when I was 10, he brought a book, um, uh, back called Silas Marner by George Eliot. And it was like so over my head. Mm -hmm. And when I read the introduction, I go to my dad and I used to call my dad Abu. And I, I would say, I said, Abu, why, why did this woman, Marianne Evans, have to write in their, a man's name? And he said, back in the Victorian era, women were not taken seriously as writers. And so she wrote, you know, in a man's name, but don't worry. When you grow up, you'll write your own book and you'll use your own name. Everyone will take it seriously, even though not, it's not that it's a pun on your title, right, but, right. <laughs> but I think he always wanted to be a writer. And I, I, that's one thing I'm very grateful for. And I'm curious about you because I laughed when I read the auntie conversations about <laughs> what college are you going to and what are you yeah. doing? So tell me your story and your parents and if, so whether you had these conversations with them too. Yeah, look, the focus on education is something that really came from my grandparents uh, in our case. You know, they, um, and especially on my mom's side, I mean, my, my grandparents, and my, my maternal grandparents um, were especially active in the Indian independence movement. They raised us, you know, I, I was in a Hindu and Jain household, but incredibly secular. You know, they would encourage us to go to mosque or, or temple or church wow. with anybody who invited us and really yeah. a, a, a real Gandhian view of faith and yeah. togetherness. And um, and I appreciated that they also were, uh, they were both teachers. So they made sure that 
uh, you know, there were never any excuses. My, my mom and her sisters uh, and their brother had to get as much of an education as it was possible to get. Uh, and that certainly was passed on to us. I mean, it, especially in our case, I think, you know, the, my dad came here with the equivalent of $12 in his pocket as part of the post-1965 wave of immigration. And I, I always feel like I have to, you know, the, the, the sanitized version of that story is my dad came here with no money and he really made it. And that's true. He worked his butt off. But it's so important to, to remember that there was a shortage of doctors and engineers mm. in America at the time. And that's one of the real reasons that so many Asian Americans were able to come during that time, that he got into an engineering grad program. That's why he knew that as the American dream and as 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 what it was like to build a better life. So here I come along. I mean, we mm. joked about this in the pre-meeting. I'm terrified, <laughs> right? Dream. And then I say, I want to be an actor. And, um, you know, that's not that's not why they moved to America. So the first son can say he wants to be an actor. And I felt a lot of that pressure from from the Indian community um, in in ways that were, you know, th they weren't always uh, polite. There were a lot of aunties and uncles who would say things like, are you not smart enough to go to medical school? <laughs> I mean, look, the, the answer is no, I was not smart enough to go to medical school. But you just don't say that. Uh, right. So it was, I think, what, what you describe a lot in some of the earlier chapters in the sense that you have this sense of community or this yeah. sense of, of family. And there are certainly there's there's a lot of support there. But also a lot that, you know, I, I had to work through. Uh, and by the way, not to jump too far ahead into our conversation, but when you said um, the, the piece about in Victorian times, women who would write had to change their names. I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s interning, there's a chapter where I talk about one of the worst bosses I've ever had yeah. uh, who taught me how not to produce movies. But during that time, I remember that there were screenwriters, particularly women who wrote action and horror films, who would change the names on the front of their script to, to men's names just to oh, get the script wow. read. So the when you said Victorian times, oh and I just God. think, you know, we often think of Hollywood as a more progressive, more liberal place. And yet when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion, they, they've been fairly late to the game sometimes. You know, Cal, it's and we are jumping ahead because I but I want to I've got I want to go back and ask you something about your early yeah. life, because there were things in your later chapters that did stun me, stunned me that I, I want to come back to. But I love and I love this notion of the Hindu Jain and that you you were going to mosques because that's definitely how we were raised as well. You know, curious about other I came from, both my parents were Muslims. Actually, it's one of the reasons my parents were allowed to stay here in uh, the 60s is because back then, as you well know, an Indian man and a Pakistani woman right. could not have gone back to either yeah. country and sort of lived. And that's, you know, that's how they got, um, that's how they got asylum here. But they really did encourage us and push us to be curious about other cultures and faiths and, mm -hmm. um, and religions. And I write, um, and I, I kind of had goosebumps when I read the opening story in your book about the experience that you had. Um, and I'd love for you to tell us about it, but also because I actually had this notion myself in fifth grade when my father had his kidney transplant. So I went to school in Saudi Arabia. It was a very international school, but people for the most part, you know, were kind of a mix. There were mutts. A lot of us, most of us were Muslims. And so I would dip it. America could be this ideal for me, you know, and I, I write, 
every time we went on a trip, we would land and I would wake up and ask my mom, is it America yet? Because to me, America represented this ideal. America was freedom. It was choice. It was opportunity. Um, but I do write about this one experience in fifth grade when my father had his kidney transplants, my parents in New Jersey for a period of time. And Cal, I kind of struggled. I became the kid. I shot, I, I knew all the answers because I went mm-hmm. to British schools in Saudi Arabia and I, I found that it was material I learned very quickly learning that the eye rolling, the nudging, the not understanding the Americans, you know, sports. I didn't know the, you know, the rules behind certain games. And it really did make me wonder if my experience, I wasn't the kid bringing, you know, smelly Indian food or whatever. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that experience was and what, because to me, this was my takeaway, is one of the ways you, you sort of made your way through was this ability of creating, as you write, you wrote so many beautiful things that I wanted to actually quote, but that you said um, that you had these stories you told, you know, I opened my book with, I grew up surrounded by stories and I love right. hearing stories. I'm compelled by stories. It's why I love your memoir. Um, but tell me about storytelling and what stories did for you and tell us about the wizard of Oz. Like I would love just to hear what that experience was like and okay. how you made I, it. I, I will tell you about that. And then it's very funny that you're describing it this way because I was about to ask you to tell me a story that I loved a section of in the book. And I, I know, you know, for, for both of us, when you do press, when a book comes out, you, I, at least my experience was, I had no idea what people were going to gravitate towards and what they awesome. what they may not. Um, and there are so many sections in your book that really resonated with me that people haven't been talking about as much that I would love for you to to share. Um, so okay, I'll tell you the Tin Man story very quickly. Uh, in when I was when I was growing up, absolutely right. Our, the town that I grew up in in New Jersey was really white, but diverse within that whiteness. And what I mean by that is that you know, a lot of people spoke multiple languages at home. So there was a big Italian-American community. A lot of folks spoke Polish or uh, or, or German even. Um, middle school, there was a huge Jewish community. So every every weekend was a bar bat mitzvah in seventh and eighth grade. Um, and so like the New Jersey, central New Jersey bat mitzvah scene, like I was I, I was pretty, pretty well versed in. Um, but the the bullying and it, and it's funny that by 2021 standards it's called bullying because back then we just knew it as middle school. Um, when kids would kind of beat you up in the hallway or throw your books down the you know down the stairs, um, if you were brown, it was often accompanied with a, a little uh, a little quote from either. Apu from The Simpsons or Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, some reductionist stereotypical thing that was out there in some of the most popular film and TV shows that kids would watch at the time. And it was the first thing that struck me about, wow, people really, especially kids, like really uh, take those images of what we see on TV and kind of convert them in, in, in an interesting way where those images really affect us. That same year, your, your Tin Man question, I played the Tin Man in The Wiz. You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's a the, the drama kids would be chastised by the the soccer players throughout the year, especially because we were putting up a play. And I I went up on stage, uh, and there's a there's a phrase that you might have heard that actors use. You know, I was in the zone. That means the character took over, and you really didn't have full control over what you were doing. That's how into the character you were. At 14, I hadn't experienced that before until The Wiz. So I'm doing this play in front of the whole school. 
um, there's a scene where the, the Tin Man gets his heart and he's supposed to look at the audience and say, all you fine ladies out there, watch out. And it's meant to indicate that he's capable of love. Well, instead, I was really nervous and I went zone and I, I got my heart and I said, all you fine ladies out there. And I did this gigantic pelvic thrust. And then I just said, watch out. And the crowd went wild. All the girls started screaming. People applauded. And on the late bus home, all the soccer players applauded and said, that was so funny. We really enjoyed it. Why didn't you tell us that's what you were doing? And my first my first reaction was I was waiting for the second shoe to drop. I was waiting for the spitballs. I was waiting for that extra thing. And that never came because they genuinely enjoyed whatever their preconceived notions were, were evaporated with a silly joke that I had made. And that was the first time I kind of realized, well, wait a second, I've seen the, the the downside to these stereotypical representations, but there's an upside to comedy that can bring people together in ways that I never had imagined. And that was one of the catalysts that made me say, I want to be a storyteller for life. I want to, I want to, I want to bring characters to the stage or to the screen and make audiences feel amazing, beautiful things that they maybe hadn't felt before. Um, and one of the, one of the things when I, I remember transitioning uh, to my very brief public service career, uh, always in awe of yours and always watching everything that you, that you were doing. And we, by the way, this is a total non sequitur, but I know we crossed paths in Iowa and in several oh, other yeah. states uh, during the whole the whole sort of campaign process. One of the things that I loved story-wise about your book um, was when you were an intern, uh, It's I think it's even in the first quarter, and you just, you write about Ramadan. And you write about sharing Ramadan with people and what that felt like. And even just being an intern and feeling accepted in a way that had not been the status quo in your life up until that point. I I had a similar experience when I worked in Washington. It wasn't until I worked at the White House that I felt that because I I, I felt the opposite in in Hollywood. Can you talk about what that was like and what that Ramadan was like and that, that sort of conversation? You know, it's amazing. You know, I, um, it sounds like you had a tremendous amount of confidence in your, uh, in your ability to tell stories and perform. I think I did too. The only difference between you and me when we were younger is you were clearly very good as evidenced by your Wizard of Oz experience. I was not like I recount in my book, I would stand up at family parties and say, I have a new poem. Who wants to hear it? And all my siblings and cousins would be rolling their eyes and my father would be clapping from the back saying, that's beautiful, beautiful. Um, and he always told me the greatest power um, was the power of my pen if I used it wisely. But I um, fast forward, I did, um, I did um, make it to the White House. I walked in as a 21-year-old intern. Now, I do want to note, Cal, that like you, I was rejected <clears throat> okay. uh, from one very, you know, special university that I thought I would automatically be accepted in, which is my parents' alma mater. They met at the University of Pennsylvania. They were Fulbright scholars. Um, but, you know, so here I am thinking I got to follow in my parents' footsteps. I have to go to the University of Pennsylvania. If I get a very skinny little letter saying I was, mm-hmm. I, I was rejected. And it made me think when I read your story about ending up at UCLA, I thought, this was so similar because I ended up going to George Washington University for yeah. college. Um, and it was exactly the right place for me. The minute I walked in, you know, just before I had um, left Saudi Arabia for university, I had turned, and this goes to actually what I think is a core theme of your book and, and maybe mine, but I think really yours, because you've been, you know, such a, f- 
you know, you, you know, you're, you, you've just been a face out in the world, a well-known face out in the world for so long, but this notion of seeing something to believe it's possible. Mm-hmm. And, um, so just before I left for Saudi Arabia, um, sorry for college, um, it was the midst of the Gulf war. This is the first Gulf war operation desert storm. And I was watching TV and I turned the TV on and I see this woman. And, uh, the minute I saw her and listened to her, I thought I'm, I'm going to be her. And that was Christian Amanpour. Oh, amazing. For me, it was this notion of here I am. I watch women on TV in Saudi Arabia. They're always covered. Or you watched, you know, CNN and you you didn't see a lot of people who looked like me. And so she was my moment of, I see that. So you know what? Maybe I can be that. So I land in George Washington University um, and thinking I'm at the center of the universe. This is where Christian Amanpour is going to be. The next Christian Amanpour is going to be born. And I joined, I think you were similar in this way. I was very curious about different student unions when I was at school. Yeah. And so I had a friend that I met through the Black Student Union. Her name was Ranith. And she comes, um, you know, comes up to me one day and says, listen, I have this great internship at the White House. I interned for Mike McCurry. And, you know, the blue curtain that the press secretary stands at, I sit in the office behind. Well, this was my Wow. Yes, of course. I never thought I would get the internship. I fill out the application form and sure enough, I'm shocked when I get in. And then I walked in and day one, this is 1996, September, 1996. I'm 21. And I was actually disappointed because I was not assigned to the press office. I was assigned to the first lady's office. And I remember calling my mom from this, those brick cell phones we used to have back then. And saying, mom, I didn't, I'm not in the press office. And she says, well, maybe plan A didn't work, but you know, plan B will be, you know, something to explore. And it was amazing. I mean, walking, when you tell the story about bringing Diwali to the White House, when you were there, first of all, first of all, I'm shocked actually that there was not a Diwali celebration of the, of the White House. So thank you for doing that. There, but there when, were, but never what? with the principal. With the, the principal. With okay, the okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for bringing it to that level because <laughs> it, you know, it should have been. But when I walked into the Clinton White House in 1996, I really felt like it was, I was surrounded. And by the way, Cal, I didn't even know if I was a Democrat. I mean, right. most of my family in New Jersey, if they voted, they voted Republican, as I write in right. the book, like lots of, you know, South Asians, fiscally and yeah. socially conservative. Yeah. So back in the 80s, you sort of automatically. But I kind of fell in love with the cause, with the mission, the work the First Lady was doing on behalf of women around the world, what President Clinton was doing, particularly Middle East peace. So for me, like you brought to Bali, we had Ramadan celebrated in the White House. And it was the first time I really felt, you know, like I knew more than people in the room. And it came with a great amount of confidence. And I felt very kind of welcomed and a lot of curiosity about my, you know, cultural and, and, and faith values. And I think that was the benefit. Look, I had the honor of working for both uh, the Clinton administration and the Obama administration. I think that was one thing both administrations did really well, which is Definitely. this feeling of inclusivity and expanding mm-hmm. the table so there are more seats. Um, and boy, because you, when everybody who's watching reads this book, you'll see what Cal, because I, I really want to hear a little bit more about what you had to go through to be who you became, because- there are shocking moments in this book. Like when you tell the story about Brownface. I mean, I yeah. fell out of my chair. Um, and so I would love, because every time I, you're always, you're so joyous and so optimistic about the world every time I see you. And you really did blaze a path um, for many of us. And so 
thank you. And also, can you share a little bit about that struggle and that experience? Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, thank thank you for saying that. I think the, one of the subtexts of of my book, hopefully, is how systems can and do change, and and the ways in which that's possible. Um, you know, when I when I started out as an actor, um, I remember, you know, I went to UCLA um, after very dramatically shaving my head after getting rejected from Yale, which uh, I I write about in that early chapter. But I, I ended up going to UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, and um, being very excited that I was finally so close to the entertainment industry, so close to people who were working in the industry that I wanted to to go at. And so many of my classmates already had agents. They had agents who signed them and they were going out on auditions and I wanted that. So for about two years, every Wednesday, I would put my headshot and resume together, sometimes with a tape of a student film or an audition tape that I had made and send them out to prospective agents. And Nobody ever called. And after about two or two and a half years, a wonderful actor named Jenna Vanoy, who was still a dear friend of mine, she was on the show Blossom uh, back in the 90s and then the, the Parkers in the 2000s. Um, she had a real A-list manager. And she said, why don't I take your tape and your headshot and everything to my manager? He'll at least meet with you and you guys can talk about kind of a, a good strategy. No guarantee that he'll necessarily sign you, but but probably. And I said, that would be amazing. What a What a big favor. She goes and, and uh, comes back to me about a week later and said, um, so he doesn't want to meet with you. And I'm, I'm curious if you, how much of the story you want to hear. And I said, look, putting on my, uh, hanging up the artist hat for a second, putting on the, the business person hat, I'd really like to know everything so that I know what to do differently on my audition tape or my submissions moving forward. So she said, oh, okay, so two things. One, you should know that uh, you really did like your tape. He said you were incredibly talented and he doesn't just say that. So I want you to know it's true. And I said, okay thank you, but I feel like there's a big but coming. And she said, yes. He said, but uh, somebody who looks like you is never going to work consistently enough in Hollywood for him to want to meet with you or even take you on. You know, agents and managers make a commission off of all of their clients. And if you're not working enough, then it's not worth their time. And I was really disappointed for a number of reasons. But the biggest reason was that there was nothing that I could have done differently in my audition tape. There's nothing I could have done differently on my on my headshot. My barrier to entry was that it was the color of my skin. And I remember being, you know, confused. I remember thinking uh, a lot of things actually be, I had a lot more clarity on on things like Seinfeld and Friends, two great shows that were very funny shows that were on the air around that time. You have to try really hard to make New York City look that white. Right. I mean, there's no doubt that those writers are incredibly talented. The producers are phenomenally funny, but you have to try hard to exclude most of New York City. And so those things started to click with me where I said, wow, that's right. These people are actually making a decision to exclude. So what do I do? What am I going to do to get my foot in the door? And there were when I finally did land an agent um, and started working towards those auditions, there were you know, every audition early on was, um, you know, can you put on an accent? And and to be clear, an accent itself doesn't make for a stereotype. It's the reductionism that generally accompanies right. those types of things. So, you know, do you have an accent? Where's your turban? I said, well, I'm not sick, so I don't I don't have a turban. I had a woman say, well, can you go home and put a bed sheet on your head or something? Because we need you to look like you have a turban. So all of these things that back in the day kind of beat you down a lot, um, there were certainly times, I mean, I appreciate the kind words he said, but there were definitely times where I just thought, 
maybe maybe it's not the right time. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. I have a brain. I can do other things. Uh, and slowly over time, making the decision to take some of those roles that I found exhausting or, or stereotypical to build up a resume in the hopes that things would change down the line were sort of the, the starting point of my of my path. Um, and and I'm, you know, what, what I love now, looking back 20 years later, is how dramatically things have changed and how far yet we've still to come uh, or still to go. But there are so many younger South Asian, I mean, not even just South Asian, just actors of all diverse backgrounds who have not had those experiences that those of us who came of age in the 90s had had to deal with. And that's a that's a big sign of progress. You know, it's it's something that I really that I really value. Um, I, I wanted I wanted to ask you kind of a similar question, because obviously, obviously, uh, as, you know, as a, all of those experiences with diversity, the one thing that I didn't personally experience is issues of issues of gender, obviously, as a as a man. Um, and I, the, there's a section in the book that really resonated with me when you talk about 2008 uh-huh. and jumping from the loss in Iowa. And obviously it was a, you know, very contentious primary, the unlikeliest two front runners, right? Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. What an embarrassment of riches looking back on that and going from, you know, the Clinton campaign's loss in Iowa to this phenomenal win in New Hampshire that I think you you describe as one of your most inspiring moments that you you had the chance to to, to witness with with her um, I'm curious how that was contrasted with sexist comments that you write about hearing and having to deal with and the reason that I'm asking this the, the I related so much to this because of the juggling act of okay I'm 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 getting I'm booking a part and it's a it's a phenomenally racist part, but I'm I'm taking it. I'm making the choice to take it. I'm building up my resume, and I was always mindful that when I was doing that, I didn't get the celebration that other actors get when they book those little parts, right? I I didn't get the let's all go out for beers with my buddies to celebrate that I have these five lines because I didn't feel particularly good about it. And there's a thread of that, obviously, but there was a thread of that that I was curious about how you dealt with the, this incredible privilege inspiring thing in New Hampshire brushing up against this awfully sexist rhetoric that was coming out around around the time can you talk about that a little bit well I you know I so few people ask me proactively about that section of the book and I'm so glad that you did because I, I chose to write in detail both in 2008 and 2016 and actually start with my experience in 2000 when Hillary was first lady and she was running for the senate and um and there was this moment where she was in a debate with Republican congressman, Rick Lazio, and he wanders over in the middle of the debate. He marches over to her, her podium, shaking this piece of paper in, the hand, in his hand, saying, you know, insisting that she sign it. And I think of how unprepared we were to deal with. I mean, we're sitting in the whole in the green room. We're all sort of looking at each other saying, holy shit, is this really bad? Is this, does she, you know, does he look strong? Does she look weak? Like we hadn't quite figured out. Um, it was my first, I guess, brush with what it was like as a woman to be in politics. And then 2008, and the reason I write about this in, in detail, and that was a very tough primary for me because, um, for all of us, uh, rather, because talk about embarrassment of riches and those of us who had been in the Senate with Senator then Senator Obama, it was a very, you know, a very warm, close relationship, you know, she and President Clinton. And I'm sure he hates this story, but we were among the people who when 
she ran, you know, did an event for him in Chicago when Axelrod had, you know, her come out and do an event for him. She gets into the car right after we left that event in 2004. This is before the convention. And she calls President Clinton and says, you know, I just met our first African-American president. And then sure enough, months later, everyone sees him, at, you know, at the convention. I felt like and I feel like in 2008, we didn't know how to handle these comments even us women. So any people commenting on her jacket, on her clothes, I write in the book, you know, about a, you know, a, 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 you know, Republican, whatever commentator saying, every time Hillary Clinton comes on TV, I want to cross my legs. And we all laughed. Everyone kind of laughs nervously because Mm -hmm. nobody really knew what to do. And that New Hampshire moment for, for as a woman, I just think of this notion of this is history that Hillary Clinton has made on behalf of women and girls for generations. And if anything, when you see what has happened since, it just shows how hard it was to do that. And she won that primary. You know, as you said, we saw each other campaigning in Iowa. It was, you know, Senator Obama comes from, you know, behind and really has this phenomenal win, but it was really hard. And towards the end of the campaign, I write a story in the book where, you know, we have this you know, donor from New York calling and saying it's enough. She needs to drop out. It's enough. And at that point, I'm so kind of filled with fury where, yeah. you know, I, I react. I say, I'm not I'm not even putting her on the phone with him to bully her to get out. But um, I think in 2016, it's now, a you know, accepted fact that sexism mm-hmm. played a part in her defeat. I just don't think we can see people. And it's I kind of end the book, not kind of I with a sort of a warning to all of us as Americans, until we start seeing women in a way, until we teach our boys not to be afraid of women's power, to see women as executives, it's it's really, it's still a challenge that we have. And I write in detail all the things that we had to, you know, go through uh, on the Clinton campaign. And it was not easy. I mean, ju- ju- you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but I was horrified. And I knew this at the time when I, you know, because it was, it was sort of, it was in the news, but like Michelle Bachman and um, House Republicans, you know, it, it, combining obvious sexism with just Islamophobia in such public ways. How did I mean, I, I, I guess my question is, how did you, how do you even deal with that? And the reason I'm asking it in that way is I'm hearing you talk about letting it sounds like letting a lot of the sexism early on, you know, sort of roll off of you as you're trying to figure out what it even means like are people actually like this until it clicks what happens when they add islamophobia to something like that and when women are doing that too by the way it's not just you know it's not just old dudes yeah what i um no it actually didn't even occur to me until you just said it you're right i mean it's this notion you know it is one of the big sort of i hope a takeaway from my book is the importance of female women supporting women but that moment and i think you would understand this given our mutual background we come from a part of the world where your family name, your reputation is everything. Mm-hmm. When you tell a story early in the book about the Sweet 16 party and, you know, they see families <laughs> would jump in the river right. rather than listen to their daughters <laughs> yes. talking in certain language. So yeah. for me, I mean, the reason that was such a horrible experience went horrible isn't the word. I mean, it was shocking, devastating, enraging because she was a, they were attacking my parents my family, my father wasn't even around to defend himself. And it was complete fake news. And it wasn't just me, you know, they attacked me and a bunch of other, and you've now, you've served in government. It was other Muslims in government. 
And it was all lies. And then we land in Egypt and Hillary's secretary of state. And we're at a meeting with these Egyptian, these Coptic Christians. And this man says at the table to Hillary, I don't know if we trust you because you have a member of an extremist organization who is advising you. So we're not sure we can trust the Obama administration based off of that. And that's when I had this like aha moment of all of these sort of little things that are, you know, you think they're little snowball into these things. And, you know, Senator McCain went to the Senate floor to defend me. President Obama defended me at the annual Iftar, by the way, dinner. And it was amazing to have them defending my family name. But what they were doing was more than that. They were standing up for the values that this country represents and, and, and the principles upon which this country was founded. And lo and behold, it was the appetizer. I mean, 2012 was just sort of a drop yeah. in the bucket and my whole yeah. faith and community just, you know, targeted in the most extreme way in 2016. It was, and it was, it was successful, sadly. You write about that beautifully, um, and and you also write, you know, you you share. I mean, really, you share intimate things about what those years were like. Obviously, you talk about your relationship with Anthony and and how all of that un unraveled for you. What's the biggest takeaway that you're hoping folks get from all of those stories? Because I know when you know when like a People magazine is going to write a, a small column, you know that they're going to focus on the salacious. But I would guess, having written a book myself, there's a reason behind a lot of those stories. Or is there a big takeaway that you hope that people people get from it? You know, one of the reasons I don't know if you get this question, but every time I and so I appreciate that it was not your first question to me. But every time I've done mm -hmm. an interview in the last two weeks, I'm asked, why did you know, why are why are you writing your story? Why now? Yeah. Right. And I know in 2016, 2017, when sort of the world was on fire, at least my world was on fire. Um, you know, I think people wanted to hear from me and wanted me to say something. But you get it. You've now been a political staffer. I mean, mm -hmm. our job is to be in the background. Our job is to be invisible. Right. Um, we are not the story. And when you're the story, it's actually a bad thing. And I liked being the invisible person. I loved my job. When Hillary Clinton left the White House, I said the day I didn't want to go to work is the day I was going to quit. And that was 25 years ago. Um, but I, I, I felt like for so long, everyone else is sort of telling my story. I wanted to reclaim my history. But more than that, I think what I went through with Anthony is actually not that, sadly, uncommon. I think- yep. Betrayal and heartbreak and devastation um, is actually fairly, you know, a lot. I think a lot of people might relate to it. Um, I just had to go through it on the front page of the newspaper. So if my story in some way can help people, uh, I also happen to be in a relationship with somebody who was battling with what was later diagnosed as addiction. Um, and I, you know, coming from the world of politics where there was such, you know, people didn't understand what was happening. It took us a long time to figure out what was happening. It was really, really hard. And I got to a very, very low place and I had to power through. I had to get to my lowest, get some help. And so if I can help, you know, one woman, one person, one Muslim girl, one brown um, person, I feel like it's a small bit of service I can do. And I suspect to some extent you probably felt the same way about you. I loved you said something about when you talk to young people, they have the privilege of seeing the world through today's vacuum. I just, I mean, there are so many Cal quotes in this book. I could just go on and on that I really loved. Um, but it's, I kind of want to throw that back to you too, is this notion yeah. of, 
passing it, you know, passing the, you know, your wisdom to the next generation and what, and whether you feel optimistic. You are um, the first person to ask me about that quote, that line from the book. And I'm like, I'm kind of, uh, kind of beside myself because I almost didn't include it in the book. I remember exactly when I put that line in. And the reason that I did was I was, you know, in the whole point of sharing all of these stories, like I mentioned, is because I, I'm so glad that things change. And I love what I do so much. And I love that I have the chance to do it. Um, and I, I I felt like it was important to to share those stories. Um, there are there are some younger South Asian folks who understandably will approach these questions as follows. Do you ever regret or don't not even do you don't you regret the stereotypical roles yeah. that you took 20 years ago? Now, that's it's not really an answer. It's not really a question with an answer, right? Because you're asking it in 2021. Right. If you're asking, do I wish I had a magic wand and could go back and play a dude who jumps out of a helicopter and parachutes or I save all the good guys? Well, hell yeah, I would have liked to have done that. <laughs> but I think, you know, Chris Evans probably did it in his first movie, but that just wasn't in the cards. You know, you have to sort of go through what you're going through. And I, I, I mentioned that in that section, because to me, that's one of the benchmarks of progress, you know, and I, I, I liken it to the time that I spent in the White House. And I, I assume yours as well, where um, today you have people who say, oh, uh, well, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, they're such moderates. They're such moderates. They, right. they, they didn't do enough. And I think that's fair by 2021 standards. But also, I feel like if I were a Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or Hillary Clinton, my answer would probably be, you're welcome. Like, I know <laughs> right. that they can't say that, you know, but that's how you know that that progress has worked, yeah. is if we're looking back saying they didn't do enough, it's like, well, yeah, because now it's your turn to take the reins. Now it's your turn to continue to build on that. So it's it's funny that you noticed that sentence in there. Well, no, I, I, I you know, I've, I, one of the things, I just have to read something that you wrote Um at the Obama inaugur inauguration, yeah. and you said, it actually felt like we fit in. We belonged here. In light of some of my darker experiences in middle school in Hollywood, this was not a feeling I was always used to. Yet here we were included on a historic patriotic day. And this notion of patriotism, um, something clearly so special to both of us. I mean, it's my, a big part of my title is both and, and one of the yeah. both ands for me is that I can be all, I can be an American Muslim and also an American Patriot. And I feel like that's a connection um, that we have together, which is, um, I, you know, I loved how you wrote that. And you, I mean, and how did you do all of this in two years? First of all, there's no way. <laughs> You were at the White House for two years. What, all of the, I mean, you know this. You don't everything you, you were a part of, and clearly working with an extraordinary group of people. I love right. all the people that you mentioned in the book. They were tremendous, and look, as you know from those teams, I was a very, very small part of a lot of those amazing, amazing teams, and would never trade that for the world. And I, I could talk. I, I have like a laundry list of like fifty questions I want to ask you about your time in the State Department, but I know I'm getting the, the prompt that we should yeah. go to audience questions. And okay. I think your segue was the right one because you're absolutely right. This idea of, um, of of patriotism and identity all being one thing and not necessarily having to choose the way that people might expect you to, to, to need to choose. 
Um, I'll ask you this first one that came in from the audience. I guess it's for both of us, but um, what's the best piece of advice you ever received and what advice would you like to pass on to the next generation? So the best advice I ever received was from my father. And, um, and he said, your eyes, you told me when I was a little girl, your eyes are at the front of your head for a reason. And that's to look forward and not to look behind you. And I think, you know, my dad wanted me to study history, but I think he wanted, he wanted me to study history so that we learn from the past and not make future mistakes. And the advice I like to pass on to the next generation is um, something advice I did not follow. I write a chapter in the book where I make a decision 25 years ago, I'm at a family wedding and I get a call to go to Argentina for work. And I took the trip to Argentina. I always picked work and family always came second. And I, you know, sacrifice a lot of time with my family and friendship. So I always say, quoting my dad again, a good life is a balanced life. Try to find balance uh, in your life. Wait, what about you? What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I'm going to, so I, I, I hesitate saying the best because then you offend people who gave you good advice. But uh, I, I remember uh, in those early days um, when I was uh, trying to be an actor, I went to, I think it was the Screen Actors Guild had a, a conversation with um, a woman who I believe at the time was the only black actor on network TV. Hmm. And one of the questions from the audience was how she deals with typecasting, but also how she deals with rejection, something that surely every actor has to deal with regardless of the color of our skin. But when you're a performer of color, it's magnified. And she said, actually, she said something that um, you said a version of in uh, your CBS Sunday morning piece, Hmm. which I really loved. She said that um, she knows that she wants she needs to be overqualified for everything. She just that's just the, the reality. She knows that. Um, she is trained classically in theater. She's, uh, you know, she's done Shakespeare. She knows that when she goes up for a movie, the casting director and producers know that. And if they want to hire somebody else who maybe looks a little more mainstream, who looks like they're from Iowa, uh, who doesn't have training, they know that that's why they hired her and that that's the best that she can do. Now, in my case, the reason that, that that resonated with me was I was carrying so much anger around at things that I yeah. couldn't control. Right. And she was just basically outlining how to channel that anger into something that would be useful for my career. Obviously night and day, but I think it was the last quote uh, in your CBS Sunday morning piece was about, and I'm, I'm butchering it here, but it was about being exhausted by being, being angry. angry. Yeah. And that just spoke volumes. We have two, so our lives are so different in this regard, but I really related and I think so many other people could too. It's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. You watched my CBS Sunday piece. I'm absolutely. It was wow. amazing. I told you I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, okay. So okay. There's another, uh, another question. I, okay. This is also for both of us. Um, so we both worked in government. I mean, this is already phenomenally unfair because Huba literally has a, uh, a legacy of service. <laughs> okay, can you can you talk about the country's current state of polarization and, and what do you think might be needed to bring our country back together? That's a question that I always struggle to answer. Um, so I'll let you go first. I struggle to answer it too and date myself here. Well, actually everybody here knows I've been in, I've been in, in public service 25 years. But, you know, I do believe, um, so first of all, I think this administration has their work cut out for them. They inherited a mess. I I think of all the things, unfortunately, very often, I think about all the things that would have been different in our country if Hillary Clinton had been elected in 2016. Mm -hmm. 
uh, things like um, the reaction to the pandemic. And I don't believe as many people in this country would have died. I think the response would have been much better and more efficient. I think this Afghanistan withdrawal. Biden administration not realizing that they did not inherit a plan. They inherited a deadline mm-hmm. um, and they did the best that they could. And the good, from my perspective, like I remember Tony Blinken when he was like the cool NSC guy down the hall <laughs> dating Evan Ryan, who was like a pretty, you know, scheduler. And Ron Klain when he was in debate prep after debate prep, you know, for multiple candidates. And I remember, you know, being around the road with Jake Sullivan and banging on his door and saying, Jake, it's three o'clock in the morning. We're in Moscow. We haven't eaten. Like, let's go get a meal. The reason I tell the these sort of connections is I know these people, we know these people, they're, they're patriots, they're trying to do the right thing. It's a really hard time to get anything done. And to me, I don't believe it's why I, you know, you know, I I write in the early part of the book, my dad really believed and it was important talking to the other side Mm -hmm. and Muslim fellow Muslims would say, don't go into these conversations where angels, even the angels fear to tread, but you have to be in these conversations. Otherwise you're not going to get anything done. So my opinion is the only way we're going to get stuff done is figuring out a way to be in a room. Compromise, unfortunately, is our reality to the point you made about both President Obama and President Clinton and Hillary, like to, I don't know how we do it any other way. I don't know how standing in the corner, yelling and screaming or setting ourselves. I I just, we want to get things done and, and we need to get things done for our country. And I think that is the only I think that is the only way forward. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you said that way more eloquently than I could. The only thing I would add is I remember when I, uh, when I was the president's liaison to young Americans, oh, um, yeah. President Clinton invited me to speak at the, the Clinton Youth uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, in right. Miami. Of course. And oh, uh, I had the chance to have dinner with him and, and several other leaders afterwards. And he said, um, I want to recommend a book to you. Um, it's called The Big Sort by Bill Bishop. And by the oh, way, sure. for everybody watching, you have to read our two books first, but then add The Big Sort by Bill Bishop. It's a wonderful book. And he said, um, you know, it talked about the, and, and mind you, this was like 2011. It talked about how America was getting more and more polarized and how people are choosing where they live based on a number of factors, including who, who thinks like them and how dangerous that could be yeah. and how much that worried President Clinton. And I've thought about that so much because in my short time in government, certainly I tried to apply that lesson. Thankfully, my boss, you know, President Obama, but also Valerie Jarrett and Tina Chen were adamant that in the public engagement office, we truly brought in people who didn't necessarily agree with the president. And a lot of times they were farther to the left and a lot of times they were farther, way farther to the right. Um, You know, one of the best examples I, I can remember of this is conversations around climate change, where there were young evangelicals who were so passionate about climate change who came in and met with you know, people who were far to the left who didn't think the president was doing enough. So to your point, I mean, that type of coalition building, you don't have to agree on every single issue, but that type of coalition building is the only thing that's really going to move the needle forward on particular topics or particular issues. And I'm actually pretty hopeful that we can still do that as long as we turn off cable news, Uh, (laughs) you know, and, and, and it does feel amazing to like tweet something really angry at the uh, at the person you disagree with, but it doesn't necessarily move the needle on it. Well, you know, I amen to everything you just said. And, um, you know, I came of age uh, in politics back when, you know, cable news, it was the 24 hour news was a thing. And now it's 24 yeah. seconds. I think one of the biggest lessons we learned in 2016 
is that this notion of these stories that seem so outrageous, we would never, I mean, we just wouldn't even respond because they seemed so crazy. And now it's not responding. Essentially, you're, you know, accepting that, you know, perhaps um, it's fact. I mean, I just think the amount of information that is being thrown at our, you know, certainly our children. I, um, I just, it's, it's concerning, but that's why public, to me, public service, I end my book this way, which is to me, it's like the worthiest. And even for you, it feels like it was kind of in your blood and you sort of fell into it by happenstance. Like didn't Olivia Wilde have to like convince you to go to your first Obama event? Yes. The, the story is, that is true. Uh, I was on house at the time with Olivia medical drama and she knocked on my dressing room door and she said, hey, I have a plus one to a Barack Obama event. Do you want to come? And I said, no, no, I, I don't. She said, uh, well, I saw you reading his book. And I said, well, yeah, I read his book. That doesn't mean that I want to go to an Obama event. And this was, you know, this was, I think this was October 07. So he was still 30 points down in the polls. Um, you know, Senator Clinton, John Edwards were leading by far. Uh, and I just said, I'm not, you know, I, I, I was remembering my grandparents, you know, it's all about public service, yeah. it's not about politics. And she, she finally convinced me to go. And I, I go to this event and, uh, and she, she's standing, Olivia's standing next to me. All I knew was it was going to be about 50 artists and the Senator was going to make the rounds, basically asking us for help in Iowa. Uh, can you come to Iowa to do some youth outreach? And I, I knew that people were going to ask about arts education. They were going to ask about cultural diplomacy, things that artists ask about. So I went home I, before the event. I looked up uh, the campaign website, uh, the climate change proposals, and I saw um, there was a big section about how you know Obama's plan to invest in corn-based ethanol uh, and what that was like. And I remembered, this also shows everybody what a nerd I am. I remembered that a few months prior, there was an article in Foreign Affairs, a magazine that I subscribed to that the Council on Foreign Relations puts out, that talked about how investing in corn-based ethanol drives up the price of corn as food for people in developing countries because the system doesn't differentiate between corn for industrial production and corn for consumption. So I thought, well, this is my this is my question. I'm going to ask a smarty pants question in a room full of artists. They're going to ask about the NEA funding, and I'm going to ask about climate change. So Obama's making the rounds and he comes over to where Olivia and I are standing and he says, uh, hi, how are you? And I said, Senator, I have a question about climate. And he goes, oh, OK. I said, you know, I, I read your climate change proposal, you know, investing in, in, in corn based ethanol. Isn't that just going to drive the price of or, uh, corn up in developing countries? People won't be able to feed themselves. And he looks at me and he smirks and he says, oh, yeah, I, I read that article in Foreign Affairs, too. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you read my plan carefully, you would see that I'm investing in corn-based ethanol as a bridge to cellulosic ethanol so that you can make, you know, fuel with things like grass clippings and, and leaves when you mow the lawn and he walks off. And Olivia says, you just got schooled by Barack Obama. And uh, we both signed up to do just one one volunteer trip. But that was the thing that initially kind of got me into, um, you know, into into that campaign. Uh, and, and then the you... reason that I tell that story and I go, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, then you didn't even know how to apply for a job. I didn't. The reason I tell all of these stories, they're obviously very self-deprecating, but yes. it's it's that there are so many people. I mean, I once I got to Iowa, I was so impressed that whether you were on Team Obama or Team Hillary, or frankly, there were like 10 other candidates at the time, yeah. there were so many people who were doing that because they genuinely believed in taking a break from whatever, or adding on to whatever their, their job was 
taking time to volunteer. I mean, I remember when I, when I, even as recently as, as 16, when I was uh, working for the Clinton campaign, you know, we would get on planes and there were people who yeah. were in their 60s, were volunteering, people who had taken, you know, I, I, mean, I just took a week off my job, knock on doors in a battleground state. People do this sort of a yeah. thing yeah. and we don't hear about it as often. And it's, it's deeply inspiring. So that's why I wanted to write about it and make fun of myself a little bit in the, in the book. No, I think it's great. You know, I, I write about it uh, in, in, in my book to this notion of it's hard to describe that feeling, that adrenaline when you're in those rooms, in those gymnasiums, the sense in those town halls, you know, walking the sense of possibility, the optimism, the, you know, I, you know, I, I start my book with saying my parents, they knew America wasn't the perfect country, but it's sort of the ideals that it represented and there's just something about being in that place and space where it is so rewarding feeling like maybe you can help somebody. I mean, think of the stories, people's stories and, and problems and hopes that you carry in you. Like I, I, yeah. I they're like precious treasures um, for me that I've collected over the years. It's been a real honor to be able to do that. There's uh, I know we only have a couple of minutes left. There's okay. a question that, that came in oh. that um, I've gotten a few times actually when on, on my book tour, and I assume you have as well. Uh, oh. While writing your book, did you learn anything new about yourself? Oh, did I learn anything new about myself? Yeah. Um, I think it really forced me to think about I didn't really want to think about like, you know, the Iraq war, like really exploring how I felt this notion of, um, oh, and also that I was, that I, 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 you know, I think I'm this really terrified, shy, scared, like scared person, but I actually like writing and I like sharing my story. And I, I don't know, maybe it gave me like a sense of like self-confidence that I wasn't sure I had, if that means anything kind of as an overall experience. Uh, I love that because mine was the opposite. I I remember turning in. So I'm used to writing scripts and screenplays and very yeah. silly, creating silly characters. Yeah. This is the first time I've written something that wasn't a policy document, but was still nonfiction. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember turning in my first couple of chapters to my editor and feeling this weird self-loathing that I haven't felt since I was 15 years old and wondering why. And there were so many I mean, it went through different iterations, obviously, and I got it to be that balance of funny and serious that I wanted. But those first several chapters, even talking about things that I had laughed about over beers with friends, um, you know, that when I finally put it to paper, came out way more dark than I yeah. thought oh, they would be. Yeah. And I realized, and like I said to my editor, I know you're not my therapist, but I feel like I'm getting way more out of this than with my therapist, you know, that I'm processing this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was very thankful. I I learned that about myself, that maybe I should, you know, do stuff like this just for me a little more often. I I don't know why, Cal, the line that you write about the scene where your back is about to be put on fire and the safety or the stunt coordinator comes up to you and says, I'm here to make sure you're safe. And he's got a scar on his face. Uh And the way you write this story, like, how is this person... (laughs) The stunt coordinator, and he managed that happen. I, I mean, I, I it is so. Anyway, you write beautifully, and this this story is like really. Um, I mean, it, I feel like I hope we've both kind of done this. This notion of, you know, sharing our truths, talking about you know, we both talk about race and identity and faith and struggle. 
mm-hmm. um, and hardship, but also like these incra- these crazy experiences we have. For some reason, you know, as, as I you know, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I thought it was so weird. So there were only two channels in Saudi Arabia. Channel one was Arabic news. Channel two okay. had a couple of shows in English. You know what the two shows were? At the end of the day, after we fasted during Ramadan, we'd run and watch two shows. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, wow. And Full House. Okay. In Jeddah. <laughs> In the 80s and 90s. I'm not joking. You write about both those shows. Both shows, yes. And actually, and I think Will actually has a book coming out maybe this week. Yeah. Will Smith, the first time Will Smith was on the state floor for like a big, big black tie dinner. And I'm standing there thinking, I've now met everybody. I'm so like, I'm nothing can shake me. And I turn, a man says, excuse me. And I turn around and it's Will Smith. And I, I literally was speechless because, you know, I now is, you know, he was so connected to my childhood yeah. as yeah. like, oh, my God, that's Will Smith. And I think he was like asking me where the bathroom was. It wasn't anything huh? more profound than that. And I was speechless. I mean, we've had a lot of pinch me moments. We, we I mean, that story of my dad and Tiger Woods at the <laughs> inauguration, uh, it, it was such an uncle moment for all the bases. I, I prepped my dad before inauguration. I said, there are going to be tons of people you're going to meet backstage. Please, if you want to meet anybody, if you want to take a picture, please tell me first. I'll make the introduction. And he was so offended. He said, I know how people treat you when we're out sometimes. I'm, I would never do that to anybody. We go into the inauguration tent. It's a green room. It's you know beautiful. Everyone's very nice. I turn around to put my bag down. I look back. My dad is gone. And he's all the way across the tent. And all I see are these flashes from his camera, his old school <laughs> camera. He's taking pictures this close to Tiger Woods. And I pulled him away and I'm like, God, we literally just had this conversation. Why are you doing this? <laughs> I, you said that you wouldn't bother anybody. And he just looks at me like I'm the biggest dummy in the world. And he goes, yeah, but that's Tiger Woods. <laughs> Hello. Hello. It's like, oh, okay. All right. Excuse me. I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I, I have a story that got cut from the book about my brother when he had his little baby girl and we're in the, we're, he lives in the UK and we get there and President Clinton was still president and, he, and my brother wants to take a picture. And so he hands this crying baby off and he hands the phone to a man saying, can you take our picture? And the man takes a picture with the camera. And then when we leave, I turn to my brother. I'm like, you know, that was Tony Blair, like Prime Minister Tony Blair, who you asked. Like he was so, in, like, you know, you know how people just get into the state when they're around yeah. famous people. I'm sure you're used yeah. to this all the time. No, so my I brother yeah. has a photo with himself and Bill Clinton that Tony Blair took and that he didn't realize. So that's hilarious. Uh, uh, they're, they're telling me that we time. only have I have so this. many questions left for Cal, but okay, we have... I know, me too. All right, so what is me your 60s... 60... Oh, wait, you're supposed to ask, sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, that's. I guess it's... We, we ask each other, what's your 60-second idea to change the world? My idea is not going to be original after you've heard this conversation, which is okay. we need more women at the table. If we had the same number of women at the table, the world would be a much better place. What about you? You're going to have something. No, mine was, mine was actually, yours, yours is actually a real thing. Mine was going to, I think mine's going to be a little eye rolly. Oh no, eye rolly is good. But (laughs) uh, it's to talk to people who disagree with us. Um, You know, I think that the, the, the polarization is painful and difficult and we all have that crazy uncle at Thanksgiving and um, 
you know, I, I don't have Facebook anymore, but to the extent that that was toxic, looking at the walls of all the people yeah. you went to high school with and yeah. the things that they say or don't say, um, the, that the simple conversation over a beer, you know, that that thing that you can connect with people on, I think is just such a um, such a special thing. It's one of the things I love about sports. It's what I love about comedy. It's what I love about having an actual dialogue with somebody. So that would be my my answer to that is just talking to people who disagree with you. It's beautiful. He was, yeah. couldn't have summed it up more perfectly. Uh, whom I feel like we could talk for. We should talk for hours, by the way. I will. I Dude, will we should have basically done a, it should have been like the Cal Huma road show. I mean, I, I so enjoyed this conversation. I love talking to you and same here. Uh, same here. We should do, we should do more. Uh, obviously want to thank everybody who joined uh, at uh, in forum at the Commonwealth club. Uh, we want to thank the Bernard Osher foundation for supporting tonight's good lit event. If you want, uh, would like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Cal Penn. This is Huma Abedin. Um, we just want to say thank you so much. I uh, hope you enjoy both our books. They make great gifts for Vivali, Ramadan, and the upcoming other holidays. <laughs> uh, so thank you, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.